Thank you, everyone, for coming um, to what is a, a very special event. I think everyone can agree on that. Um, we've got a lot of people here, but there's a lot of people joining us online as well. Um, I don't really know where to start with what's going on. Um, I'll speak very briefly, but for me, it's the worst thing I've seen in my entire life, um, what's going on in Gaza. Um, it's a crime that is... It's, un uh, it's unbearable, but it's also uh, it's, it's something that the criminals that are doing this need to pay for. I'll start with that. Anyway, I'll just briefly introduce myself. I am uh, the co-founder of Declassified UK, which is a news outlet investigating British foreign policy. Um, I'll go straight into it with the, the biographies of the, the, the wonderful people we have with us. Um, to my left is Ahmed Al-Nuk, who is a Palestinian journalist from Gaza and the co-founder of We Are Not Numbers, a collective which trains the next generation of Palestinian writers to publish their stories in English. Ahmed obtained a Chivening Scholarship to pursue a master's degree in international journalism from Leeds University before serving as advocacy and outreach, outreach officer for the Euro-Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor. His writings have been published in many publications, including the Washington Post, the New Arab, and Arab News. He has appeared live in interviews across the Western media, speaking on channels such as Sky News, the BBC, and MSNBC. To his left is Salim Labad. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Is that good enough? Okay. He's a full-time physicist working on, on the development of nuclear fusion energy. He was Oxford University's first Gaza scholar. Salim is also an Arabic-language poet, writer, voiceover artist, and TV presenter. His interests span Arabic literature, modern science and technology, the history of science, and Islamic architecture. Salim has worked on various museum curation and media production projects. Produced and presented a science show for Al Arabi TV, and often pens columns for several newspapers in the Middle East. To his left is Dr. Shad Abu Salama, a Palestinian academic born and raised in Jabalia refugee camp, northern Gaza, who is currently based in London. She recently got a PhD from Sheffield Hallam University, which explores the historical representations of Gaza and its refugees in documentary films, and is to be published by Bloomsbury next year under the title Between Reality and Documentary. Dr. Abu Salama is also an artist, activist, and author of Palestine From My Eyes blog, which was published as a book in Italy in 2013. She is also a co-founder of Hawaii, no, I've got Hawiya. that wrong. Hawia, sorry. <laughs> Hawia Dance Company, which showcases Palestine's folkloric dabke and music to UK audiences and beyond to amplify anti colonial and anti racist causes. To her left is um, Dr. Mohamed Sayam, uh, who is a medical doctor from Gaza, currently in London pursuing his master's in global healthcare management at UCL. He is a global diabetes advocate and educator, a young leader at the International Diabetes Federation and the Middle East chapter lead at TI International, or T1 International, sorry. Mohammed's work focuses on access to health and health delivery, especially in non-communicable diseases. So, I mean, uh, as you can hear, that is an absolutely incredible panel. Um, and I'm going to go straight into it because we're here to hear them speak. So I think the first question I wanted to ask them all was, um, firstly, a, a bit of personal story about their experiences growing up in Gaza, but secondly, what the last um, month has been like to be here and to watch the horror that's unfolding in Gaza. So I'll start with Ahmed, if that's all right. Well, thank you very much, and thank you all for 
coming and listening to us. Actually, the only word in which I can describe what happened to Gaza during the past month is horror and genocide. And uh, in Gaza, we have seen a lot of wars, a lot of onslaughts, not wars, onslaughts, a lot of aggressions, a lot of offensives in Gaza. But something like this we have never seen before. Now we're talking about one of the, the worst humanitarian crises in the world. The people in Gaza are experiencing a genocide. And I believe that there is no other word to describe what's going on in Gaza other than a, a genocide. Uh, and I'm saying this not because I'm emotional or I just want to exaggerate the events. It's actually a genocide. Now, more than uh, a thousand families have been wiped out from the face of Earth, including my family, including my family, in which uh, in, uh, in, in the 22nd of October, Israel bombed my home, killed 21 family members, my father, my brothers, my sisters, my nieces, my nephews. Down uh, the, the road, also, they bombed another uh, neighbor's home. All of the family have been killed, grandparents, fathers, daughters, grandchildren, and so on. So there are a thousand families who have been wiped out from the face of earth in Gaza. The number of people who have been killed exceed 13,000 people in Gaza. Number of injured, more than 50,000 people. Number of houses demolished, I can't even count them. 40%, 40 apparently. 40% apparently. Entire neighborhoods have been bombed and flattened. Israel is, uh, is uh, doing the policy of scorch earth in which they destroy everything in their sight before they move into their ground invasion. Now the tanks have arrived at the center of the Gaza city, which means they have destroyed everything while they came to the Gaza city. We're talking also about a humanitarian crisis. Israel tightened its blockade on Gaza. They're not allowing food or water or electricity or medication or anything to enter Gaza. Now we have seen a lot of uh, diseases spreading between the families and between the children and the women and citizens in Gaza. Uh, I've seen a lot of reports about that. My sister who survived, she told me that they have, haven't been able to eat or drink or have fresh water for the past 10 days. That's a catastrophe. The people I've seen videos today in the morning uh, of people uh, who live in the north, they're immigrating, they're moving south in mass actually. And the only thing that I remember when, when, when I saw these images is another Nakba, another Nakba literally another Nakba. And the worst part is that this Nakba is happening in the 21st century, where we have internet and social media and TV channels, and the people are watching, and they're not doing anything. That's the situation in Gaza in the past one month. Well, um, I probably shouldn't uh, talk more about the, the scenes of brutality and murder, because I'm sure you've um, You've been watching and following the news and seeing all these um, horrible footage coming from, well, streaming live from Gaza. Um, and these, these images will probably, are probably etched into our consciousness, and I don't think they, will, they are likely to, to fade anytime soon. But I, I would like to pay tribute to our friend Maisar al-Arabid. He, uh, sorry, sorry. Oh, bless him. Maisar al-Arid is another person. He's well and like, alive and well. He's okay. He's Somewhere in the UK. So sorry. No, sorry. Maisar al-Rayas, who, um, who 
it's became a very familiar story. He was killed with his his family just two two days ago, and uh, it's it's I don't know how to feel about the fact that this is a this is this is something that we're not surprised when we 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 were mentioning that someone was killed with their entire family. It's 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 a it's a normal day news. But I would like to quote. Um, his some of his final words, some of his last words that he sent to a friend on WhatsApp. He says, and I quote, every moment I spend with my family, chatting and laughing, my mind drifts to the final moments of other people just before they were bombarded and killed. They were probably living similar moments to ours with their loved ones. Lately, my sense of fear has intensified and I see myself trapped beneath the rubble. And the thought of survival petrifies me. He doesn't want to survive his loved ones. And, and yeah, and he, he was under the rubble. And actually, we're not sure if they managed to get him out or not. I mean, yeah, Muhammad says that they, he's still under the rubble. I mean, we, we, we're hoping that he survived, but it, it's, 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 it's very unlikely. But this, this message, it's sort of a condensed version of every Palestinian's relationship with life and death. You could live this in, in, in a few days and then you die, or you could live this um, from the day you're born until the day you're either killed or die. Um, the occupation defines our relationship with, with life. Um, in every sense of, of what that, that word means. Because we live, if you live under occupation, you're living under a constant threat of death. That death is omnipresent, everywhere, all the time. Even it doesn't have to happen. We're not worried about our loved ones only when there's a full-scale campaign of killing, like the one we're witnessing at the moment. It is something that is always there. You could be killed when you're, when you're walking the street, when you're swimming in the sea. Um, you could be killed when, when denied access to medical treatment, like many of our loved ones. Um, you could, you, your dreams and your soul could be crushed and killed by denying you access to education or, or, or some, some soldier somewhere or some, some Israeli official decides that you don't deserve to have a dream. You don't deserve to get an education. You don't deserve to travel. You don't deserve to, to access medical treatment. So in every sense, our life has been, our lives have been colonized and, and controlled. Um, the very simple, actions that we take, the very th simple things that we think about are always tied to something to do with occupation. Like, you always have to ask yourself, living under occupation, what you can and what you can't do. It, 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 they decide, they make you feel, and it, it actually is true, that, that they manage to decide everything for you. Now they're deciding who gets food and who doesn't in Gaza. So they're, I mean, they, they, they barred food from, from everywhere. No, no food is allowed into Gaza, no water is allowed into Gaza. But now when they're talking about humanitarian aid, they're saying that we will allow humanitarian aid to go into the south of Gaza, not to the north. So the people in the north aren't allowed food. So they decide this very physically. And also they decide, um, they decide things like, like 
who can get a job and who can't, who can get a, live a dignified life and, and who can't. Um, they even control with whom you could l fall in love with. Because if you're Palestinian, if you're Palestinian from Gaza, you can't really be in a relationship. You can't really marry someone from the West Bank. You can't marry someone from Jerusalem. So they, they micro-controlling every single, every tiny little detail in your life. And that is, that is, that is heavy. That is, might sound simple relative to the, to the, to the scenes of the genocide that we're, we're witnessing, but it is nothing but a continuum of, of oppression. And, uh, and what, what, what's happening now is just an, like an intense version, a condensed version of what the Palestinians have been living through for the past hundred years at least. And lastly, um, I will mention a little um, story that I mentioned on, on Sky News in an interview uh, just last week. It's about my granduncle who was killed uh, by an Israeli airstrike in, in 1948. Um, and he, uh, only one of his, uh, only, only, he had only one son who survived. And they were displaced to Gaza together with, 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 with our family. Um, but yesterday, uh, the, the well, his son, my grand uncle's son, was killed with his wife and children and grandchildren. So, what started in 1948 hasn't really ended. It's it's just a continuum of of oppression and, and occupation, and um, and it's it's something that's very very difficult to move on from because because we're stuck in it. We are forced to be stuck in it. Shah, do you want to speak on the same thing? Uh, hard to come after Ahmed and uh, Salim. Um, the past month has been horrific. It's been uh, worse than our worst nightmare. And uh, I counted uh, 24 of my relatives killed. My cousin Khalil is the only survivor of his family, his wife, Hiba, and three of his children, who are younger than 10 years old, are uh, killed. And my other cousin, uh, Hiba, who was married to the brother of uh, my, my cousin's wife, they had grouped together. They had fled from their, their home and moved elsewhere, thinking that this home was going to be safe. And then also in the same attack, this other cousin and her children were, uh, were killed. Three survived, and one remains between life and death. And the husband also survives. But a total of 23 in that separate incident on the 23rd of October. The day after, I'm sitting with my cousin Yusuf, one of my closest cousins who, who was surviving in Jabalia refugee camp, my birthplace. And I was uh, trying to gather the names and put a list of our martyrs and uh, pictures and uh, gather their, their ages, as much, as, as much information we know about them as possible so they don't 
get forgotten in the uh, number, the increasing number of uh, martyrs. We wanted to make sure that they are not numbers. Another uh, one, one of uh, the things that the platform Ahmad Nanouk is working for is trying to achieve. And then uh, we, we've, do we've done this list, and then a day later, we wake up to the news that Yusuf is injured. Um, a, a missile has fallen uh, four houses away, but this is a refugee camp. If you hit one place, then you're bound to cause devastation to hundreds of squares. So, uh, so he gets uh, injured and he clings to life for four days. And in those four days, Jabalia refugee camp gets massacred and massacred and massacred and again and again and again. And the amount of devastation that we saw is, is just unbelievable. We've lived through so many of these episodes of mass killings and mass destructions. And many of us, all of us probably, every Palestinian here in the, in the crowd has found themselves at such a close encounter with death. We know how precarious our, our life is, but something in this barbarity we've never seen. My dad is 72 years old. And he says, and he's a survivor, a survivor of so many attacks of, uh, on Gaza, and a survivor of 16 years of captive resistance in Israeli jails, where torture and daily struggles is a daily matter. And he, and he stresses, I've never seen something like this in my life, and he calls it genocide. <laughs> Make no mistake, this is not a war, this is genocide. And it is happening hand to hand next to an ethnic cleansing campaign that is continuing systematically since 1948. Since Israel established itself on the uh, depopulation and the destruction of Palestine, They've dominated us indefinitely, and we are blamed if we resist. This, what we're seeing now, is a result of 75 years of international inaction that has failed the Palestinians over and over again. International interventions and uh, conventions and human rights uh, resolutions and UN uh, resolutions, how many uh, that has been already published in the past 75 years that has already endorsed everything that we, the Palestinians, have said to the world and, and also recommended Israel to stop the occupation, to stop the siege, to stop this endless uh, oppression of the Palestinians, the crime of apartheid. 
how many reports has been issued on this uh, on on these multi-layered crimes, and nothing happened to serve the Palestinian justice. And what we're witnessing right now is a result, is a direct result of the world failing the Palestinians, the international community failing the Palestinians. I hope after we finish this round, we, we have a moment of silence for our martyrs. Thank you. Um, well, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled, uh, of course, to be here and maybe speak after uh, the words of, of my colleagues here. And uh, my own experience for the past month have been nothing but complete horror and terrifying. And of course, being heartbroken for everything we see on the news, for, the, uh, for what we see um, about our friends, about our families, uh, the fact that I can't sleep at night because I keep watching the news just to make sure that my family is still alive. Just to know that, uh, oh, this bombing is not really close to my family. Uh, just to know whether I'll be able to contact my family in the morning. And for my own personal experience as a person living with diabetes, this constant stress and worrying, the, the fact that I don't really sleep that much, it has a direct influence on, on my management of, of my own condition. And I never find the time or the capacity to be able to, to manage my condition because this is the least I care about at the moment. I care about, I mostly care about my family, I mostly care about my friends, about the Palestinians who are losing their lives, who are injured, about the doctors, the heroes in the hospitals trying to support the system, even if they have no supplies. With the scarcity of resources, they try their best to help the injured even though they know themselves and their hearts that they are maybe injured from the inside emotionally. Um, I'm always worried, and I can't wait to open my eyes in the morning or in the afternoon because I don't really sleep early to try to contact my family and fail one time after another until I reach a connection for less than two minutes because we all know how the connection in the Gaza Strip is at the moment just to hear the voice of my mother or my father, knowing that, oh, we're okay for the moment. And the fact that they care about how I feel, telling me that we're, we're fine, don't worry about us. Try to, to work on yourself, try to focus on your studies. is also kind of, I don't know, it's kind of puts me into another heavy uh, load in my heart, trying to understand the whole parenting thing, how, how, my, how my family are going through such horrific, uh, such horrific times and still thinking about myself. My family, same as any other Palestinian family in the Gaza Strip at the moment, of course, are suffering with the lack of food, no access to, to clean water, no access to electricity. And I, again, I barely know their news. I barely know anything about them. And, and, and on top of that, me trying to contact people from my own community, the diabetes community in the Gaza Strip, trying to support them or educate them or tell them what to do in case they don't have enough insulin today. Or for example, if they can't access insulin at all. And for you who don't know, people living with type one diabetes would simply die if they don't have access to insulin. And that is a major problem that sometimes is forgotten in terms of emergency crises. I talked to them about the support. I talked to them about what they could eat, if even they found anything to eat. 
And that is, again, on top of everything that we, we've been hearing, on top of everything that we, uh, we, we watch on the news, is just another kind of scene of how barbaric the attacks on the Palestinians are uh, in the Gaza Strip. And again, it's another term, it's another way of saying how genocidal the attacks are. But I'd like just to bathe another way, I'd like just to draw a different picture, that despite all of that, despite everything that we go through, not only now, but for the past 75 years, I'm always impressed by the Palestinians, by myself, by myself, by my colleagues, by my friends, by my family, by everybody I know in the Palestinian community, because I know for a fact that we are resilient people. And despite everything we go through, we always have dreams. We know that we're always under constant threat that you might die at any second, that anything could happen to you, to your family, to, to your loved ones. But you still hope, but you still fight for your rights, but you still fight for what you believe in. Because we always think of this world as a better place, because we always aim to make this world a better place, not only for ourselves, but also for the people around us. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, I'd just add to that that um, I've got to know Ahmed like, over the past two weeks, and I would just echo what you say. It's uh, a deeply profound experience uh, being around Ahmed and, and these guys as well to see just how human uh, you can be in the face of such adversity. It's, uh, it's, for me, it's been a very profound experience, so I'd agree, agree with what you're saying. Um, I'd like to just go back to something you were saying, Salim, about Maisara, because I think it's important to humanize um, these numbers, because as Ahmed started a whole organization called We Are Not Numbers, which is based on the idea that Palestinians are not numbers. Every single number you see in a newspaper is a tragedy, and not just a tragedy for that person, but a tragedy for their family uh, and, and their loved ones and their friends. Um, and my Sarah is a, was, a, was a, your best friend. Um, he, you live with him in Leeds. Um, I know you guys were, were close to him as well, and he's a wonderful, beautiful human being that was a medical doctor in Gaza. He came to study here on a Chevening scholarship, lived with Ahmed, went back because he wanted to serve his people served under Mads Gilbert, the heroic doctor in, um, in Gaza, who is one of the amazing heroes um, of, of our time, along with these guys. Um, so, yeah, if, if I just wanted uh, you guys to speak about your, your memories of Maisara and what he symbolizes in the world. Well, Maisara is uh, more than a brother to me. Uh, we were both achieving scholars. Uh, we came to the UK four years ago, and then... When the pandemic hit, um, he moved to my flat in Leeds, and then we spent all of uh, the COVID time together, like uh, seven or eight months we spent it together. And um, he was a brother to me, or maybe more than a brother. When I heard the news about my friend, Maisara, it felt like I lost another brother from another mother. Uh, he was very gentle. He was very kind. He was... Uh, he was joyful and he was very funny. It's uh, when I try to remember Maisara and mem my memories with Maisara, it's always about how we laugh with each other, how we joke with each other, how we in Ramadan, for example, how we always cook food together and have our iftar together. And then after that, we would make our cup of coffee. That's uh, our daily routine. And he would always give me like funny nicknames. So I don't have any single memory with him that wasn't pleasant. He was always a pleasant, he was kind, and he was very, very, very talented. He was a medical doctor and he came and then he specialized in uh, women, ch child and children and women health. 
and he took the blab exam he wanted to be a doctor in the uk and then his father called him one day uh, and he told him uh, my sarah I, I need you to be with me and then just like that he went back to gaza just to be with his family just to be with his father and then he married the woman that he loved and then the uh, he, two months ago he came to london and he wanted to do his honeymoon in london and i was very very pleased that he came to london it was like I'm reuniting with my family. We spent a few days in London, and he was very happy. He got a job at an NGO that was very, very good, very nice. He established his own family. He was having a perfect life. And he always told us that Gaza is a very difficult place. The opportunities are very scarce, but that's why he needs to be in Gaza in order to build a better life for Gaza and for the Palestinians. And for me, he was someone who resembles success and power and um, talent and then uh, when the war started he he was very scared we have like a, a group on whatsapp and he would always uh, like communicate with us and he would tell us how he feels and he was very scared he said that that message was on our whatsapp group and it, it hit me so hard. It, it broke my heart that someone like myself, who is very successful, very talented, a doctor, and he is very scared for his life. And not only for his life, he's very scared that at some point his home could be bombed and he could be alive under the rubble. And this is exactly what happened to him. Until now, he's under the rubble. We don't know if he's alive or not, but most likely he's not alive. And not only him his father, his mother, his brother, sister. And then for three days, his brothers were trying to retrieve his body from under the rubble. And then when the Israelis saw that his brothers are trying to dig, use the hammers and dig to fetch him, they bombed them and they killed his two other brothers. So it's like, when I say it's a genocide, it is a genocide. Because right now there is no justification, nothing that makes sense to why would Israel kill two brothers who are trying to retrieve the bodies of their, of their loved ones. So it, it actually broke my heart. And I, uh, for the past two days, I've been only tweeting about Maisara because he is like a family to me and he did not deserve to, to die. He did not deserve to die in such a barbaric manner. If, and I, I always say to my mind that if it was only Maisara that Israel killed, that would be enough that the whole world stand up and pressure Israel and sanction Israel and put those who were responsible for his uh, murder to account. But unfortunately, we live in a world that is actually, I said it now to my friends, this world is not ours. And my family and my Sarah, they do, life doesn't deserve them. They're now in a better place. I, I really the mean it, they're in a better the place. Hassan Kanafani wrote actually um, a novel called A World Not Ours that I recommend to everybody. Ghassan Kanafani was a Palestinian icon who was also assassinated far away from Palestine in his refugee camps in Lebanon. Israel would go out of its way to kill Palestinians. And now they're killing Palestinians in their occupied territories in the name of self-defense. Do you guys want to talk about my sorrow? Yeah, well, definitely. Um, Again, like um, I, I can't describe what happened because Maisar is definitely a best friend for for a lot of people, and he's someone I personally looked up for 
for, 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 for a long time, since day one in med school, because I'm, I'm, I'm four years younger than Maisara. And since day one in, in med school, I've always looked up for Maisara. I've always saw him as an inspiration, as someone who can lead uh, and as someone who can support others around him. And a great story for mine, of mine with Maisara uh, was just, because um, you just mentioned Dr. Mads Gilbert and he supervised uh, a program called uh, You Can Save a Life in Gaza. And, and Maisara was one of the co-leads of, of this program uh, for a few years before I, I co-led that program uh, with a friend of mine. And I just can't describe how much support Maisara gave me. Uh, throughout those years. Uh, Maisara was always supportive, was always willing to help, was always willing to give advice on how can we lead such a program. And this program is mainly about educating and training medical students in, in Al-Azhar University in Gaza uh, on basic life support so those students could be able to transform their knowledge and their skills to the community in the Gaza Strip and, and, and teach the people of the Gaza Strip by practical training on uh, life-saving first aid, which is a crucial thing in the Gaza Strip as, we, as, we, as we're witnessing at the moment. And for me, um, the fact that it's not only Maisara right now, but also we've, we've heard the news uh, like a week ago of, of Dr. Sabab Sophia, who's a fifth-year medical student in, in Lazi University, was also a promising leader of, of, uh, of the You Can Save a Life program. And for me, I feel like they're even that the Israelis are literally breaking the chains that we're trying to to provide for the people of the Gaza Strip on literally how to save themselves, how to perform first aid, how to support each other in such circumstances that they need to be supported, that they need to be together, that they need to to have at least the the minimum of supplies at least to 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 help each other in in, in such circumstances. Um, for me, Maisara was always known for his charming smile. Uh, uh, Maisar is not just, definitely is not just a number. He's a true leader. He's someone we always aspire to be like, and he's, he, his memory will always live inside of us. And we'll always um, have his name uh, by our hearts, uh, trying to comfort ourselves, knowing that uh, we know that we'll never let Maisar down. We know for a fact that we'll always fight in his name for a better humanity, for sure. Salim, do you want to say something? Yeah, um, I don't have much to add, but I, 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 I actually met Maisara on uh, in July 2011, so 12 years ago at a barbecue in Gaza with a bunch of friends. Um, the only way you can remember him is is what a happy kid. This is this is have always remembered him. This have always thought about him. Uh, his charming smile, I've never seen him not smiling. Uh, but the sad reality is, no matter how happy you are, no matter how positive you are, no matter how, how resilient and how determined you are to make a difference and to live your life and to do everything, ev to do all it takes to, to, just, to just live, well, the, Israel will always stand in the way. Like, this is the reality that the Palestinians have to, to come to terms with. Um, we can't have a normal life with an occupation. We can't even live, live our, our just ordinary mundane life normally because Israel would always be part of it. Like we, we can't enjoy the mundane anymore. We can't enjoy the normal, the, the trivial, the tradi like nothing. Israel will always stand in the way and, and, and no matter how, how much we try to escape this reality, it just is it, chasing us. 
the same way they were chasing his 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 or the way, the same way they chased and killed his brothers when they were trying to to pull him out of the of the rubble like, like yeah the, the same way they they're chasing everyone like the survival of the nakba they're being chased in in Gaza at the moment and yeah we we, we can't avoid this reality and, and and somehow we have to deal with it I just want to ask about, uh, it's related to what happened to Maisara and his brothers, because obviously when you hear that a house is bombed or when the media presents it, the, there's, a, there's a sense that this is maybe random. They're just going, they're going crazy and they're just bombing everything. But it's clear, there's a clear pattern that Israel is targeting the best, of, the best and brightest of Gaza. They are going, as you said, they're going after everyone who might provide a way of living a human life in Gaza. They, so they're going after lawyers, they're going after medics, they're going after teachers. Journalists. And journalists, yes, well, very, I mean, one of the most, I mean, it's all so horrific, it's beyond words, but um, the, uh, the, uh, Al Jazeera had, was shut down in Israel, um, and then the day after, they bombed and killed the family of the Al Jazeera correspondent in Gaza. So that was a statement. It was saying, we will kill your family. They didn't even kill him. They, they killed his family. Um, so I just want I, I think this is part of uh, what needs to change is the narrative is that this is not, none of these are, um, are mistakes. That they're, they're targeting the best and brightest of Gaza because they want to destroy any remnants of human life in Gaza. They want to make it unable to live. So I just wanted to, you guys to talk about what you think Israel's goal is related to what, what I just said. Do you want to go first, Ahmed? Well, actually, they only they also target the peace activists, and it's shocking. Even those who call for peace, they're targeting them. For example, they targeted my friend Ahmed Abartima, uh, the um, the founder of the Great March of Return. He was my best friend. He is my best friend, and he has always been one of the most vocal voices for the peaceful resistance, the unarmed resistance. And he has always called for the one-state solution. So he actually wants the Palestinians and the Israelis to live together in one land with equal rights. And they targeted him. And that was at the beginning of the war. So they targeted him. They killed five of his family members. And he was severely injured. Thanks God, he survived. But that's what Israel is doing. So they are targeting the peace activists, the doctors, the journalists, and everyone. And they're targeting the houses in the north and the south. And they are closing the border. So they want to send a message to the Palestinians that we are coming after you. Whether you live in a hospital or at your home or a school or anywhere, you are in danger. They want to kill as many Palestinians as possible in order to intimidate others to leave their homes and finally go back to Sinai, uh, to go to Sinai or uh, anywhere else. And that's not a secret. They have said it on the TV on many, many occasions. They said it happened before. It happened with the Syrians. The Syrians, half of the Syrians are now refugees who don't live in, in, the, in Syria. So it can happen to the Palestinians. Why can't the Palestinians go to Sinai from Gaza? And why can't the Palestinians in the West Bank go to Jerusalem? So this is their master plan. And they are putting it in motion. They are preparing and they are intimidating the Palestinians. They are forcing them to, uh, to force. And I, I always say that we depend on the Palestinian people. The Palestinian people are proud, they're powerful, they're strong. They will resist, they will stay in their lands, and they will not uh, allow the Israelis to intimidate them. But I fear that at some point, 
when the families, when the fathers can't provide bread and food and water for their kids, I think not any, any human can, can do this. So uh, not any human can, can allow this to happen. So maybe the Palestinians will leave. And this is, what the this is what the Israelis are trying to do right now. They're trying to force the Palestinians to leave their homes and lands in order to ethnically cleanse them. The same thing as in 1948 in which Israel displaced and ethnically cleansed thousands and thousands of Palestinians and they started their, 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 their Israel. So this is, I believe that this is the master plan. This is what they are trying to do right now. But I hope that the international community will come in. I hope that the free people from all around the world can step in, protest, do whatever it takes peacefully in order to stop the Israeli government from uh, from making this happen. Because they are evil, and their plans are very evil, and I think we, we have to do something about it. Um, there is a movie called, um, I think, uh, The Wanted 12, something like that. Look it up. Mm -hmm. 18. The, yeah, The Wanted 18, 18 yeah. yeah. So it, yeah, exactly. It's about cows. It's like eighteen cows that were chased by the Israelis. They were trying to confiscate them. Uh, it's the story of the uprising of Beit Sahur, I think, in nineteen eighty-seven, nineteen eighty-eight. I can't remember exactly. Um, and the story goes as as the the, the people of Beit Sahur decided not to pay taxes to the occupation. It's a civil disobedience. Who can argue with that? And uh, and then before that, they bought eighteen eighteen cows to um, to have some sort of um, sufficiency, self, self yeah, sufficient. self sufficiency in terms of you know meat uh, milk production, but then when the Israelis found out that these people are not buying the Israeli Natuva, whatever it's called, the, the, yeah, the, the, the Israeli milk company, the the Israeli milk and the the they're milking their own cows, this became a crime, and they started chasing these cows and they wanted to confiscate them, and the Palestinians kept you know hiding these cows, so. This explains how how Israel would just target everything that would resemble any sort of meaningful, not like meaningful and sustainable Palestinian lives. Um, there were reports yesterday of uh, about the ambulances that took injured from Gaza to Egypt. I mean, they. They, they, they bombed many of them on the way and they, they killed many, many people and many injured people um, on, on the way to, to Egypt. But those that, the, the ambulances that made it to the other side were not allowed back in to Gaza. So these are ambulances. Like the, the fact that there's no fire brigade vans in, in Gaza or lorries in Gaza, it actually explains what the Israelis are about. They don't want the Palestinians to be able to function like to function at times of quote-unquote peace and to function at times of war. This is why it's not very pleasant for um, uh, for for Israel to hear about uh, to hear about you know the Palestinian doctors trying to um, to build some sort of uh, an emergency plan, a crisis plan. It, it's not it's not something that they would welcome. Um, at best, they want the Palestinians to live in you know in camps in dire in dire conditions, mm -hmm. and then they would allow some aid to come in. And, and, and this is the whole problem with describing the, 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 the situation in Gaza at the moment as a humanitarian crisis because it, Israel has somehow 
conditioned the whole world to see the Palestinians as just as, as a humanitarian a humanitarian problem. And this is why it's not it's not completely sort of irrelevant when the Israelis ask ask the Egyptians why don't the Egyptians take them? Why don't Egypt take them? Why don't uh, uh, the, the Jordanians take the Palestinians? Because for 75 years, they portrayed, together with the international community, they portrayed the Palestinians as kind of this, I don't know, a human burden that is just, that we probably, if we don't kill them, we should just, you know, keep them at bay and maybe feed them, like afford them some food and, 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 and water. Um, and this, is, this has become acceptable, that the only way we look at Palestinians is through the humanitarian uh, lens, without thinking much about their political aspirations and political rights. And, and the question of political rights, even now, when they're talking about about Gaza after Hamas and, and after this war ends and the Israeli plan for Gaza after. Like, no one is actually talking about the rights of Palestinians. No one is talking about what the Palestinians want. Everyone is talking about like a humanitarian, a humanitarian corridor. The Palestinians should live in dignity, like whatever that word means. It, there were the different interpretations of what dignity um, is, is uh, the different levels of dignity that, that you could afford the Palestinians. Um, uh, so, so, so yeah, they, they, it's, not, it's not out of style for Israel to target every mean uh, to a meaningful life that Palestinians uh, try to build. Um, yes, um, I would. I would add that um, that the Palestinians' existence itself is uh, under threat. It is is deemed a threat to uh, the settler colonial enterprise of Israel, and and this has this has been decided long before even the foundation of Israel. And nowadays, we hear lots of Zionists feeling empowered, saying publicly that David Ben-Gurion didn't finish off his job in 1948 by completely ethnically cleansing the Palestinians. And what Israel should do now is finishing off that job. They've been already publicly saying in, in the pre-state uh, times of Israel, that their main goal is a land without Arabs. And this has been, uh, this is no secret. Um, and the, the, the UK knows it, the US knows it, everyone knows it, everyone who supported Zionism knows it. And even Zionist leaders have, have also expected native resistance. They, as they aligned themselves with colonialism and, and imperial powers to uh, legitimate their foundation on, on Palestine, in historic Palestine, they were saying that any native uh, population would resist a foreign domination. This is their words, not mine. And, and this goal for a land without Arab has been consistently translated in Palestine all over um, historic Palestine between 
the uh, river and the sea. And that's why when we say free Palestine from the river of the sea, we don't say kick the Jews out. We say that this process of dispossession and, and, um, and dehumanization against the Palestinians between the river and the sea must end. This is what we say when we say free Palestine. And it's important to remember that this humanitarian so-called disaster is man-made. It is political. And we have to use every chance, every tragic um, incident or every pain we, we need to share with you in order to remind you that we deserve to live in freedom, justice, and equality. And the people of Jabalia, or Al-Nusayrat, or Al-Jinayna, or any refugee camp, whether in Palestine, or in Lebanon, or in Jordan, or in Syria, if they have to move anywhere, they need to go to Haifa, Yafa, to to all these lands, to Beit Jirja, to Isdud, Ashdud, to these lands that we've been denied return to, although it is guaranteed by 194 UN Resolution 194 of 1948, that to this day fails to be implemented. Like uh, I just like like to quickly and briefly kind of emphasize on Ahmed's point that they're just trying to um, silence every voice uh, of Palestinians. They're just trying to kill every ray of hope, uh, every dream uh, that we that we could dream of, and uh, they're trying to shut us down. And um, I do believe again and I'm emphasize on Ahmed Ahmed's points that. Uh, it is a moral responsibility for everyone of the free world to speak up for the Palestinians, uh, to stop what's happening, the massacres on the Palestinians, to support the Palestinians and to support the, those who are in, in dire need of, of our support, whether that's through a protest, whether that's through you posting something on social media, boycotting, anything that you could do. Is, uh, is something that we should look at as a moral responsibility from us towards those who actually need, uh, who actually need our voice to, uh, to support them. Uh, um, just to go back to Salim's point as well, there was a, a WikiLeaks cable that came out in 2008, well, it came out in 2010, but it was from 2008, where an Israeli official says explicitly to um, a, uh, to a US official that our goal is to keep um, Gaza on the verge of a humanitarian crisis at all times. And that is, as you say, that is the plan. I mean, and that's what, that's what they want the status quo to be, that they can't live. We, won't, we don't want it to go into a full-blown humanitarian crisis because we don't want to be embarrassed, but we don't want them to live any kind of decent life because they're, they're a threat to, to, to us. They, um, I can't remember exactly which Israeli official said, um, we will put the Gazans on a diet. Yeah. yeah. So, and, yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to talk about that because, for me, the key to all of this is what you mentioned um, uh, about dehumanization. Like, this is the key. This is the only way this can happen, is that the Israeli government, but also it has to be said, a lot of Israeli society, if you look at the polling, they are 
they are mostly supporting uh, this, and they also, when you're polled about Palestinians, they have fascistic views about the Palestinians. So it's a society that is is deeply, deeply uh, racist, um, and, de and 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 I would call it a, a, a fascist society. Um, can you? I just wanted to get you lot to, uh, to talk about like what is it like? I mean. I mean, one of the most profound experiences for me was going to Palestine twice. I went to the West Bank, and uh, I tried to get into Gaza both times, but they wouldn't give me a visa. But the first time I went with the International Solidarity Movement, and the second time I went as a journalist. And the, it, it was a life-changing experience, but the thing I came away with most is, is what you said, is like uh, how human the Palestinians are in the face of some of the darkest forces that history's ever known, in my opinion. I mean, when you see apartheid up close, they're, they're, a lot of people say when they come back, you, you're changed after you see apartheid, for real. It's, it's, I always think of it as like the total negation of the human spirit. Everything, there's walls everywhere, fences, everyone's divided based on their ethnicity or religion. It's, 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 it's a horror. But in the face of that, the, the Palestinians I met and were taking me around. I slept on the floor of a family in Sheikh Jarrah, who were going to get evicted by uh, Israeli settlers, and they did. I went when I went back in 2015, 16. I, I went back to the house that I'd stayed in, and it had a it had a massive fence in front of it and an Israeli flag. So, I mean, how does it feel when you're experiencing all this pain and all this trauma to to to, to for it to to have this dehumanization of your existence, and also as a supplement to that, if, uh, I don't know if you want to answer this as well, the role of the media in that, because that is the main vehicle through which this dehumanization happens, Ahmed. I believe the most or uh, many, many of the major uh, mainstream media, Western mainstream media are complicit. They are complicit in the war crimes that are taking place right now in Palestine. And I've said it many times, and I will say it again. The Western media killed my family. The Western media killed the Palestinian families. The Western media killed more than 5,000 Palestinian children so far during this war. The Western media is the reason why we are dealing with, with all of this. They have been complicit with the Israeli crimes for, for so long, not only during this war, but for 75 years. The Western media has been portraying us as animals. It's exactly what Netanyahu said, or uh, the, the uh, Gallant said. They are portraying us as animals, as we are less worthy, as we always have to prove to the occupier or to prove to the Western audiences that we are, we are like you, we are good, we are not terrorists, as if the default for Palestinians is that they're terrorists, that they are all Hamas, that we want to kill the Jews, the Jews. And they, do, they know that many, many of the, the best supporters of Palestine right now are Jewish and Jewish people from all around the world. But they always say the Jews because they want to print this image on the viewer that the, the Palestinians are inherently anti-Semitic, that we want to kill the Jews, that we are all terrorists. Not Hamas, we are all terrorists. The Palestinian people are terrorists. Not only during this war, but for a long, long, long time. And I've, I've been a journalist in Gaza, and the, the fir my first encounter with the, with the Western media was during the March of Return, which in my eyes, it's, it's a, an amazing phenomenon. Palestinians, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, protested for two years, peacefully, at the fence between Israel and Gaza, and they said, we want our right of return, which is guaranteed by the UN, Resolution 194. 
peacefully. And then the Israelis started shooting the Palestinians, killing 300 Palestinian people. And then I was reading the media. I was covering the news, and I was reading the Western media and how they cover. It's always on the BBC that, for example, on the 14th of May, Israel killed 60 Palestinian protesters, peaceful protesters at the March of Return. It was a massacre. It was in front of my, it took place in front of my eyes, and I was seeing and noticing what's happening. I saw a kid. He was just two meters away from me, and he got a bullet in his head, and he was killed right away. A kid so far away from the fence. And then the media, they would say on that day, the BBC said 60 Palestinians died at Gaza border. And it's, that headline is faulty in many, many ways. Actually, why can't the Western media name the killer? Who killed these people? These people did not die. These people were killed. They were deliberately killed. These people were peaceful protesters who were demanding the right of return. But for the media, it's Palestinians die. When Israelis are killed, the Israelis are massacred by the terrorist Palestinian people. But the Palestinians always die. And they only invite us to speak to the media when they, because they just want to show that they are neutral, they're inviting people from both sides. But the question they ask us are so dehumanizing. I was on ITV a, f a few weeks ago, and uh, two weeks ago uh, on Good Morning Britain. And uh, I lost 21 family members, my father, my brothers, my sisters, my nieces, my nieces. It's, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And then they wrote, Ahmad lost 21 family members as if I misplaced my, fa my family, as if they died of cancer, of uh, a car accident. Why can't you say Israel killed 21 Palestinian from the same family while they were uh, sleeping at their home? And when we go to the media, they always ask us, do you condemn Hamas? As if this Ham condemning Hamas is the litmus test that we always have to prove to the media or the Westerners that we are worthy of living. If, if I condemn Hamas, then I'm all worthy of being heard. If I don't, then I'm a terrorist just like them. But when, when they invite the Israelis, they never do, they never ask the question. I've never seen Pierce Morgan saying to, the, to an Israeli citizen or an Israeli army official or anyone who's pro-Israel, do you condemn the Israeli mass murder of the Palestinian people? Do you condemn the Israeli killing of 5,000 Palestinian children so far? Do you condemn the occupation? Do you condemn the siege? Do you condemn uh, the, the settlements that are spreading in the West Bank? Do you condemn the many, 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 many uh, violations of international law. They never ask them because the Israelis are humans, but we are not. We always have to prove our worthiness, our humanness to them. That's the problem. That's why I always say that the Western media is complicit in the war crimes against us. The Western media killed my family. They provided Israel with a cover, with the atmosphere to do whatever massacres Israel wants, to do whatever Israel desires, to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians, to kill children, to kill women, to bomb hospitals. To even when Israel bombed the hospital, they immediately rushed to say uh, it, it, was, it was a Palestinian missile that bombed the hospital. When there were lies of beheading 40 babies, the media all, right away disappeared it without, without synchronity, without investigation, without any proof whatsoever. And then when Israel bombs the hospital and all the evidence say that Israel bombed the hospital, no, the, no, let's wait. Let's search for more evidence. I have been interviewed by, by many, many... Uh, newspapers here. And every time I tell them the story, they would do days and days and days of security and investigation. They want to make sure that I actually lost the 21 family members. They don't believe me. 
And when I, when I tweet about it in the comments, I always say, uh, why didn't the, the Palestinians go to, to south? Why uh, you, you must be a terrorist or, or whatever? So that, that's the impression that the, the West, many of the Westerners had from the mainstream media that we are guilty. We were born guilty just because we are Palestinians. We are anti-Semitic just because we are Arabs. And we are Arabs, we're not Muslims, and this is a war between Jews and Muslims and anti-Semitism, and they make it very complicated, while the fact it's very simple. We are a people who live under occupation. We are not a separate country. We are a people who live under occupation. Israel is the occupier, and the Palestinians are the occupied. Israel is the colonizer. The Palestinians are the colonized. And we, it shouldn't be complicated. It should be very, very, very simple. Occupation is wrong. Military occupation is wrong. It can never be justified. But we always have to go to the, the we always have to talk more and more and more about it. And the media would never give you the context of this conflict. They would never tell you that these Palestinian people are living under occupation. They would never tell you that Israel is imposing a, a blockade on Gaza, that Israel is taking settlements, that the Palestinians in, in, in Israel are treated as second-class citizens. They never do that. They would just start the story when there's an Israeli killed. And then they would ring the Palestinians to ask them, do you condemn Hamas, do you condemn Hamas? But for the past 17 years, when Israel was waging many, many wars in Gaza, collective punishment, siege, uh, settlements in the West Bank, or whatever, no, that's not the story. That's not the news catchy. Mm. The news catchiness is when Israelis are killed. That's the problem. And that's why they are, I'm sorry I, I, I took a long, but no. this is, I'm, I'm, I'm just very, very, very angry very angry at most of these major newspapers because I believe they killed my family. So it's my family blood is on their hand. Salim, uh, come on to you. Mic on. Uh, is the mic on? Yeah. Salim, come on to you in a sec. But I just wanted to add on uh, onto what Ahmed is saying because it links two things, which is what I'm going to talk about, the dehumanization that Palestinians die, they're not killed. Um, today, the Achievening Scholarship Twitter account, which is yeah. what my Sara uh, got Achievening Scholarship to study here. Uh, and, I mean, it, it's just sickening, you know. That they, they called him, obviously he's part of their community. They were, it was, a, it was a, um, a remembrance tweet to say, we're sorry we lost um, uh, my Sara, but they could not even say who killed him. Even though the they were death of my the death of my son, or where he was killed, or where he was killed, or how he was killed, nothing. It's or like it just came out, yeah. and it's it, it. I know it, it seems like a small thing, but it goes to the heart of everything because no one's telling them to do that. That's just someone on on the Twitter account, and they know just they're programmed from a young age to just not see Palestinians as human beings. That is, and that is because of a relentless effort of the Israeli occupation to dehumanize uh, Palestinians because Palestinians have to be dehumanized to do what they do to them. Um, and uh, that is, I, I believe, what we have to fight going forward with all, with all our might because, as Ahmed says, the Western media is complicit and we need to call them out and make sure that, this, that, 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 that they just are ashamed by the fact that, they, that they've... Uh, that they've been complicit in one of the worst crimes uh, in human history, I believe. Like, and we're not even finished yet. So, sorry, I just wanted to add that. But Salim, it would be great to hear your thoughts on that as well. Well, um, I think I think the way the West sees the Palestinians uh, is, is is colonial, racist, and uh, maybe a little bit orientalist. Uh, I'm not an expert on these topics, so. Um, but 
it, it when when they say that the Palestinians are killing themselves, it uh, I think it, it appeals to their Orientalist fantasy about this kind of this weird people who live in the Orient, the others who just so hysterical that they kill themselves or they kill their own children to feel sorry for them and and. And and I think it appeals to some sort of fantasy about the Orient and so somehow, uh, and this is the light way to think about it. Uh, the brutal way is this is a colonial, uh, colonial effort. You have to demonize the the, the population. You have to dehumanize them as well, to justify oppressing them. You have to to call them barbaric. You have to call them uncivilized. You have to call them all sorts of things, to accept. The suffering uh, in in two years ago, like in, uh, when when the war in Ukraine started uh, in 2022, uh, some of the some of the the the, the media the the, the the mainstream media correspondents uh, correspondents um, came out and said uh, these are different refugees. They're civilized. They have blue eyes. They're blonde, and and it actually, almost European, but didn't yeah, make it yeah. European. So it's it's so it, it just explains they wanted by they are racist by for saying that, but I don't think they said it because they they want to be you know racist live TV. They wanted to appeal to the people to um, to to find some sort of connection with the Ukrainians. It's like look, they're just like you. And we need to we need to empathize with them because they don't deserve to die. But those other refugees, you know, the dark the, the refugees with dark hair and and, and beautiful dark eyes, uh, they're not like you. They're they, they it's okay for them. And also, now with what Israel is doing, uh, when they kill ten thousand Palestinians now, for me growing up, when I used to hear the numbers of how many Palestinians are killed, honestly, I didn't used to think that's a lot. So now the ten thousand Palestinians it's a lot. But actually considering the context in two thousand fourteen they killed two thousand people. And over the past ten years they killed about six thousand people, like with with no major scale uh, like large scale um, uh, assault. So they are in a way conditioning us, even the Palestinians and the entire world to think that we are used to, to this. Die. Mm, yeah, we we are used to die. We were used to dying. We're used to to seeing. We we're used to misery, and we kind of we know how to deal with it. So it's okay. This this part of the world is just sad and miserable. So it's okay. But when when a tragedy happens to someone who's not used to it, then yeah, okay, we have to empathize. We have to call them. We have to have headlines about them all the time, which is. Kind of psychologically, it, it makes sense, but doesn't make it less colonial and less, especially that they are involved in the killing of Palestinians. They are involved directly in the oppression of the Palestinians. This is not just a, rem a, a remote crisis that's happening, you know, irrespective of, of the West. This is actually a, a, a Western manufactured crisis that they are actively contributing contributing to. So. So yeah, I understand why why they dehumanize the Palestinians, and I don't expect them to stop. Honestly. Um, on on the issue of dehumanization, um, I've experienced dehumanization, believe it or not, uh, the day I was born. I was born in 1991 uh, during a curfew uh, in Jabalia refugee camp. 
And at that time, Hamas barely existed. That was our just our daily life. Our daily life is uh, oppression, basically oppression. So uh, in that curfew, Israel indoctrinates um, the Israeli army to kill any moving being. Even a cat could die if, the, if it breaks the curfew. Um, so my mom's labor comes in the middle of the night, around uh, 1 a.m. And they have to walk through the alleys of Jabalia refugee camp for around uh, one kilometer to the closest um, clinic to give birth to me. Uh, they were facing deadly consequences for just breaking the curfew. And this is, I mean, she had no choice. She's in labor, so she had to break it. She goes assisted by my grandmother, who's a survivor of Nakba. She leans on her. My grandmother is holding one lantern in one hand and a white flag in the other. We are bringing a child in peace. And they walk through the alleys. This is my story of birth. And I walk through the they walk through the alleys, and my mom's superbly pregnant. And they, sh they uh, point a gun at her belly, and they say, oh, you're going to bring your terrorist child. So we experience dehumanization even when we are ideas. Even, even as an idea, a dream for our parents, we are dehumanized. And then this dehumanization was a, a part and parcel of everyday life. Hardly any access to, uh, to safety in your own home. And when homes become unhomely, when, when parents cannot assure their children that they can keep them safe, imagine the devastating consequences on a family that cannot just provide safety to their own children because they have no control over any aspect of their lives. And then I came out of Gaza with all these big dreams to become somebody, to go back and serve my people and empower Palestinians and empower the narrative of the Palestinians. And then we are called anti-Semitic and terrorists and dehumanized when we enter the banks and know about the investments the banks hold with arms trades and Caterpillar and Elbit systems and Raphael and many others. If you do the research, you would find, you would find out all these connections. We are dehumanized when we enter the supermarkets and we see what's on the shelves, like Sabra and these, and these uh, uh, Israeli dates that are uh, basically Palestinian stolen lands. 
every there, there, there's just no ending. We open the, the TV and we hear the politicians and the media and the dehumanization stabs us. We hear the politicians, Sowella Braverman, she, she calls the protest a hate protest. This is a labor of love for an abandoned, oppressed people. And no one, no one can demonize it as such. Well, to be honest, I, I have no words to, to add to, to what they've just mentioned. That's just, uh, yeah. Yeah, I understand. Um, next question is just about, I mean, what's come across very clearly is that Israel is hell-bent on just the annihilation of Palestine, the annihilation of the Palestinian people. And it's just been working out a way to do it. Uh, with minimal fuss for the last 75 years. That is, that is their, that's what they want. And this might be their final solution to that problem, what we're seeing now. But they're not just, th that process is not just about annihilating Palestinians in Palestine. It's about annihilating them everywhere. Um, and you've all, you all live in the UK, and you're not safe here. I mean, Ahmed tweeted today that I, I don't feel safe in the UK. So he's, he's a Palestinian, he's here. Shard, I know you, 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 you grew up in uh, Jabalia refugee camp, managed to get out and do a PhD at Sheffield. You were given a lectureship, and then they went after you, didn't they? Yeah. They went after you, and, they, and, and you, you lost your job. Just so, so well, I was hounded out hounded of out, my yeah. job. Hounded out of your job. So nowhere in the world, it's not just in Palestine, nowhere in the world is a Palestinian safe from intimidation and the oppression and the control that you've been talking about. So I just wanted... Everyone to talk about what the experiences. Or, I mean, Ahmed, you can talk specifically about what what you meant by that tweet. What, what uh, and and then others maybe uh, whatever whatever you feel. Well, uh, basically, when I hear some some politicians and some uh, people here in the UK say that these protests are hate speech, are hate marches, this indicates that these people look at us as people who are hateful, who are dangerous, and that we are doing something wrong, for just calling for a ceasefire on Gaza, then you are hate marcher. So that, that, that's a problem. So that these, uh, these words give you uh, uh, an idea that if you are a Palestinian, if you speak out for Palestine, if you call for a ceasefire, if you talk about your family, if you say free Palestine, then you're doing something wrong. And when you're doing something wrong, then maybe you get punished. So that's something. But the other thing is, and I, I refuse to say this to my friends, when, when I first heard the news about my family, and I, was, I wasn't doing very well, so I was taking some mid, uh, sleeping pills. And I took a picture uh, of the TV, and the, the sleeping pills were like, the description was there. And then I posted that. And I forgot that my address is written on, on this prescription. Uh, uh, and then I received many, 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 many messages and letters on Twitter saying that we know your address, we know who you are, where you live. And that actually terrified me. Mm. It terrifies me. Mm. When I see my, when I write something on Twitter and I've, I found a lot of hate, mm. hate 
comments of people telling me, go back to Gaza. You're not welcome here in the UK. You should go away. So, so the, these comments that we're he hearing from politicians, from, from the media, that the Palestinians are terrorists by nature, that we are always dehumanized, that we are not welcome, that they always say the word that we do not want Palestinian refugees in the UK, do not get the Palestinians from Gaza to the UK. This gives you an impression that we as Palestinians, especially those of us who speak out and who are being known right now, I actually don't feel safe in this environment. I actually don't feel safe. And I was very, very happy when, when I first got the Chivening Scholarship and I came to the UK and I feel like, oh my God, these are the happiest days of my life. And then when I saw, when I saw this uh, tweet from, uh, from Chivening, the death of Maisara, I felt ashamed. I regretted the moment that I, I rejoiced for, uh, for having a scholarship. So now this hate that we're experiencing, we're seeing, we see it from many, many different levels, from the media, from some politicians, from, uh, from some people, common people who were misinformed about what's going on. It's on many layers, on many levels. And it actually, all of this gives me uh, a feeling that this is not a very safe environment for me, especially because I speak out right now and I do interviews all the time. So people know me and it takes only one crazy person, one stupid person to do something wrong yeah. and then I don't have much to add, especially after the um, the last note about the, you know, the, the actually, actually being physically under threat. Uh, but um, but yeah, we, we Palestinians are being bullied, and I think soon enough, uh, those who are bullying Palestinians, we will we will be bullying other people who don't agree with them. So these politicians who are trying to suppress the Palestinian voices are also risking the very liberal values they deem to have and to protect. Uh, because you can't have it both ways. And and now they if they can suppress the Palestinians, soon enough they will be able to suppress other voices. Can, can you just talk a little bit about what it's like at Oxford as well? Because, I mean, you're the first Gaza scholar, and obviously, uh, how, I mean, how's it been there? Oxford is a very interesting place. Uh, uh, it's not... Uh, there's so many layers to uh, to an experience of uh, of someone like me in Oxford. Uh, uh, not starting with actually being Palestinians, actually being being well, being different or being from a you know, uh, not not being part of the the bulk of the of of the community in Oxford is is uh, is quite an experience in itself. Um, but. Um, there have been incidents when, uh, when you feel uh, that you're being passively silenced uh, and passively sort of, you know, kept at bay here. Um, but, uh, and, and my way to the, I've been in Oxford for a long time. Uh, so when I was an undergrad, uh, I, my way to deal with it was to deny it to think that it's, it's fine, uh, it's okay for people to be racist, and, um, and it's, it's just the normal of, Yes, yeah, one of the things that we have to accept, and it's okay for people to <laughs> to say stupid things at dinner uh, without thinking through them, or sometimes thinking through them and still saying the worst thing they could think about. And but my way to deal with it was just to suppress it, say, okay, it doesn't matter. I don't really care. I don't belong here anyway. And this was my defense mechanism. So I just uh, suppressed it. Um, and later on, like I grew up and I was like, okay, this place actually, there was a fundamental problem in Oxford, not only again with the Palestinians, like you could hear people like defending, defending slavery in Oxford. 
like at MCR was once two years ago, someone was saying, he was a Rhodes Scholar, someone who is supposed to be very, very smart doing some degree in the history of, on the history of war. And he was saying, slavery wasn't all bad, you know? So, so, so you hear these things and, and, and for me, it's just, I don't know, like how stupid one could be to say such a thing or how evil they could be to say such a thing. And, um, and when, you, when you try, when it comes to sort of the kind of how, how, they, how they at least respond to, to events that's, that are happening in Palestine, when you try to, um, to challenge uh, the institution, then you are faced with, um, with very interesting responses, um, pretending to be compassionate, but uh, at the core of it, they are, uh, they are just an institution. And these institutions, whether we like it or not, whether they've changed or not, these at some point, and maybe still, are colonial institutions. So you don't expect much more from them. Uh, most recently, we, uh, about 19, 000, sorry, 1,900 Oxford students and, and alumni signed a petition to the Vice Chancellor um, demanding very simple demands. Uh, one of them is to stand against the genocide uh, or the, the onslaught in the Gazans in, 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 in Gaza and uh, to call for, a, to encourage the British government to call for a ceasefire uh, and, and other, other also very sort of simple uh, demands. Um, we were afforded a meeting with the vice chancellor. Uh, she was very nice, very compassionate. However, it, 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 she didn't acknowledge any of the, of the points that we made. Uh, kind of softly, very nicely, in a very loving way, diminished all of them. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so, and, and, and then we sent a follow-up email, like, okay, we want these things. Um, she promised to get back to us, she didn't. So we released a statement, actually, uh, just on Monday. Uh, just to tell this story of disappointment uh, at, at, at the institution, because, because this institution, when it claims to be non-political, uh, they do have, take political stances. Like, they took a very strong political uh, position against the, the war in Ukraine, which was great. Um, and also, even in, the very, in their very own statement about, uh, about, about the, the recent events in, in, in Palestine, they called the attack on Israelis a devastating attack just like objectively that is a devastating and that is an attack. Great. Um, but when they describe the situation in Gaza, they described it again as a humanitarian crisis. So what part of this is not devastating and one part of it is not an attack? And the response we got was actually quite interesting that language is very difficult to get right. And, and for God's sake, you have a dictionary. Like, there's, like you, if Oxford can't get the, 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 the language right, then who can? And so, yeah, so, um, yeah, Oxford is, an, is, is no different from other places. I think I would, I would say it's more interesting and, and, and it has more convoluted ways to disguise the, I would say, the inherent problems that the, the institution has. Yeah. yeah um, I, I would add that uh, that it is really dangerous what uh, the political elite is trying to do uh, by cementing um, anti, making like a basically uh, anti-Zionism almost a synonym of anti-Semitism, and this is not just danger dangerous for the Palestinians but also. Uh, for for Jews, 
um, this uh, propaganda, this disgusting political weaponization of uh, anti-Semitism needs to um, be countered. And we need every uh, voice of conscience, conscience to fight with us against this uh, misleading construction. Uh, the, the issue is much, uh, it's much more simple. Actually, uh, anti-Semitism is a European problem. It's not an Arab problem. The Palestinians, uh, Muslims, Christians, and Jews have lived in peace long before Zionism came and privileged one group over another. Uh, and we need also, I, I think right now we need to appeal to our Jomish, Jewish comrades out there to speak up because it's, it's such a dangerous uh, political atmosphere. And they are capitulating on, on this hate and trying to uh, make political bargaining of this and make a genocide pass unnoticed. So we really need everybody to speak up against um, such misleading constructions and, and demonization of, of the Palestinian legitimate struggle for liberation. Thanks. Um, well, uh, when it comes to restrictions, I've, uh, I've only came here to London like less than two months ago. And uh, maybe Ahmed and, and Mohammed here in the audience have witnessed how happy I was uh, the moment I got here. Because, oh, I'm here on a scholarship. I'm, I'm pursuing my, uh, uh, my dream degree. And I, this is what I wanted to do for, um, for as long as I was in med school. Uh, but since the beginning of the, uh, of the, again, the barbaric attack on the Gaza Strip, I've never felt restricted more in my entire life. And a lot of people, sometimes even in, in the Western media, are talking that uh, people in, in the Gaza Strip uh, are not free to talk whatever they want to talk. Uh, you don't have freedom of speech in the Gaza Strip. But I can say out loudly and proudly that I can talk whatever I want in the Gaza Strip, and I can mention things in the Gaza Strip that I can't mention here. And that is something that uh, people should acknowledge. And again, as, 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 as my colleague just said, that we're not uncivilized. We can talk about whatever we want to talk. And it is important for us to display our emotions, to display how we feel about, uh, about, uh, about our lives uh, loud and clear. Uh, and we, when we march to, uh, to ask for a ceasefire, when we ask uh, governments, when we ask the international community to, to take actions uh, against the, uh, the oppression, against what's happening in the Gaza Strip, we're not marching to, to, to again, to, to do any harm. We're literally marching to, to, to a ceasefire. We're, we're literally marching to stop this from happening. And... Uh, yeah, just the idea that, oh, for example, when, when everything started, uh, the government here just said that oh, even raising the Palestinian flag could be a crime. And that's like, this is my country. I'm free to talk about my country. I'm free to, to express how I love my country, how, how proud I am about my country. And, uh, and again, it is something, it, it is really devastating not to be able to talk about um, everything uh, in the Gaza Strip. And sometimes as, as a Palestinian, again, healthcare activist, I feel 
uh, constrained. I feel like I don't really have the rights to talk about the, the, the problems that are facing the healthcare system, for example, in, in, in the Gaza Strip, which, which I'm sure that we'll talk about in a minute uh, during this uh, elation in, in, in the Gaza Strip. But sometimes I feel like uh, a lot of the international organizations or even the humanitarian support organizations are not actually willing to support or to help the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip for their own agenda, for their own hidden agenda. If you don't know what, what is it that, that's kind of uh, restricting them from, from supporting the Palestinian. And, and that is where I feel the most how, how important it is for, again, everybody to speak. Uh, the I just mentioned about Jews, and, and we've all seen the, the uh, Jews, Jews uh, Voice for, for, for Peace uh, marching with the Palestinian, marching with the free world, marching with everybody to, to, to speak up for, for the rights of those whom are literally being shut uh, down and they can't really have the voice to, to speak. And that's why, again, it's important to speak, even, if, even if, 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 if restriction is happening, even if you can't do it, fully do it, you always kind of uh, try to, again, due to your moral responsibility, to find a way to keep talking about it and to find people with you whom, who might be, again, due to the Western media and the whole uh, mainstream thing, maybe more privileged to, to be able to use their voice uh, maybe than you. Um, I'm just going to ask you a follow-up question because uh, you didn't answer the last one and um, we had talked earlier about talking about this. Obviously, you trained in Gaza as a medic um, and we've all seen uh, the horrendous uh, images of bombed ambulances, bombed hospitals, bombing. As you said, they're just trying to cut every, every way that Palestinians can live or even treat their wounded. I mean, there was a, there was a report that I read about how there's just lots of burnt and maimed kids that can't even get treatment. Uh, and also yeah. they're in camps with, with 50,000 people with four toilets with no water. So, I mean, this is stuff that is, is big. It's big, big stuff. Um, what, can you just describe a bit about what, what the medical situation was like yeah. in, in Gaza before this but, and then this? Or, oh, or yeah, uh, definitely. So um, we all know that Gaza has been under siege, uh, and we'll know the scarcity of resources even before this uh, barbaric attack on the Gaza Strip. And uh, it, like for me, like if you, if I want to go through, like for example, my my, my journey with, with with diabetes, with an uncommunicable disease, uh, the idea that I was like for, for for example to be able to to get a prescription, you also need to uh, go to a primary healthcare clinic and. Uh, at very best chances, you'll be able to be a, fam a family physician, but it would take you months uh, to be able to see a diabetologist or an endocrinologist. It would be really hard for you. That's just before the uh, everything happening. And now, with with the attacks, people with diabetes can't even access primary health care just before. But again, just because of what's happening. Uh, but in hospitals, they're always overwhelmed with uh, the amount of, of, of casualties they deal with, uh, the, the understaffed that we have. Uh, you always find yourself, for example, as a healthcare manager there, uh, allocating resources, even during, again, quote-unquote, peace times. And now it is even a bigger problem. It's even a worse situation. And we're just showcasing, again, how catastrophic the, the situation is in, in the Gaza Strip, on, on the healthcare system, that is, again, affected and being destructed, as, as Shed said, with, with the man-made destruction on, on a healthcare that is already tired, that is already um, worse than how we could even imagine. Uh, and again, this healthcare system is serving 2.2 million people in the Gaza Strip. And uh, we, we've mentioned Dr. Mats Gilbert, and I've seen him in an interview um, 
saying or mentioning like how the situation is for him because of he's he's in contact with a lot of the doctors in, in the Gaza Strip at the moment and he's someone who's been uh, he's who's been around for a very long time um, uh, even even during the Beirut siege in 1982 and uh, during the 2009 uh, bombing in the Gaza Strip the 2014 war in the, in the Gaza Strip as well and he's saying and, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote it because I, I have it here uh, he said it um, as this is um, and I quote uh, this is the most brutal military attack um, on innocent civilians in the Gaza Strip in modern history he's never seen something like that even though he's been around for a while he knows he's experienced he's been he's been working hands hands with hands with doctors in the Gaza Strip and in Beirut trying to support those uh, with casualties in in uh, and the Gaza Strip. So I think the description is clear. They're literally bombing hospitals. They're bombing primary healthcare clinics. They're bombing um, ambulances. Just two days ago, they bombed a convoy of ICRC, the Great Cross. And that truck they've bombed was literally carrying bottled water to, to a Shifa hospital where they have no access to clean water at all. They've bombed, a couple of days ago, they've bombed the only pediatric cancer unit in the Gaza Strip, in the Nasser Hospital. They've bombed the only cancer uh, center in the Gaza Strip, that's at the Turkish hospital, that, that was just almost a week ago. And just recently, just to, to add on top of all of that, they've bombed the solar panels that, that were used as an alternative uh, power supply for the for Shifa hospital. On top of the, in the Shifa hospital, on the roof of the Shifa hospital, where refugees are. And that's just devastating just to imagine how, how, how the whole situation is. I've been in contact with a lot of doctors and I've seen how, how, how they're, they're literally operating. Some surgeons are, are operating on the ground because they have no enough beds. Some non-surgical departments are now turned into surgical departments just to accommodate the, the, the casualties. Now we're talking about more than 30,000 casualties in, in the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, we've seen, we've seen, literally, we've seen videos because we don't have, we don't, we don't, we don't really, we literally don't have antibiotics, and uh, we've seen infected wounds, literally with worms, getting out of those wounds because they don't, ha they, they can't, uh, literally, they have no disinfectant, so they can deal with with such uh, with with such uh, uh, casualties. Uh, uh, I've listened to a doctor saying that. Patients with open fractures, because we see a lot of ortho, uh, ortho patients during such attacks, p p patients with open fractures could wait up to a week to be operated into, into women health. Uh, imagine just a woman getting a C-section without anesthesia, or a woman has, having a postpartum bleeding that they, they literally don't have uh, enough supplies of, of blood control management, so they have to do a hysterectomy, which is a, a, which is a medical term for a surgical removal of the womb just literally because they don't have the capacity to, to deal with it. So it's not only the scarcity of supplies, the rooms, even corridors are now turn, turning into, 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 into departments. Even refugees, again, flee their homes to live in hospital corridors, to live on the stairs of hospitals. Doctors can't even move around right now, uh, especially at night where there's no electricity. They li could literally bump into anybody sleeping in, in, in that corridor. And that's just too much on, on literally on humanity. We're talking about a hospital. Those hospitals are supposed to be protected by international law, and now they are being targeted in the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, uh, one, one of my friends who's, who's, who's currently working in, in, um, in, in a primary um, 
a clinic, that's a primary clinic, it's a small clinic in, in the south where UNRWA uh, refuse center, where people flee to the refuse centers, they use one room of that refuge center as kind of a clinic to support people living, uh, to support people now refuging in that, uh, in that center. And he says, we're trying as much as we can to support these people, to, to give them with the supplies that we have, but we do not have enough supplies to support these people. And now I know for a fact that my friends living with diabetes in the Gaza Strip are rationing insulin, are risking their lives, not taking enough insulin because they don't have enough insulin to last with them. Rationing insulin is a, is a problem. And again, uh, without insulin, people could die. And now we're witnessing people in the Gaza Strip, because of, again, because of what's happening, people with sometimes with simple, simple problems, people living with a chronic condition or living with an uncommunicable disease, uh, cancer patients, uh, uh, hypertension patients, diabetes patients, and, and uh, literally could die because the, the doctors can't have or don't have the capacity to support those people and to help them through what they're going through. Uh, a patient with type 1 diabetes would go into something called diabetes ketoacidosis if they don't take their insulin. And for that condition, that complication, they would need to be in an ICU bed. And now we literally do not have ICU beds in the hospitals because casualties are filling those ICU beds and they're even, uh, hospitals are even overcrowded, so we don't even have enough ICU beds. Just uh, a couple of months ago, we were, we were even talking and kind of celebrating that the ER unit in a Shifa hospital is being expanded and now it would capacitate more people. But now with what's happening, nothing is enough. And again, we're talking about uh, an undertrained uh, staff. We're talking about lack of resources, of facilities, of, of, of supplies, of medication. And on top of all of that, they're getting bombed. And the humanitarian aid that is supposed to enter to them is not allowed, is denied. So they're like people in the Gaza Strip, in, in, in the humanitarian aspect and in the healthcare aspect, are literally being denied the rights to live. And that's, 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 that's the problem. And that is why, again, uh, we keep saying that Israel is committing a, a genocide against the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Because this is not just, as they say, an attack on Hamas. This is an attack on every Palestinian because they want us to die this way. If you don't die because of a bombing, you die because of star starvation. And even UNICEF have mentioned that people, children, sorry, children are, are now starting to be threatened or to die because of dehydration. And you just could imagine, I've seen a tweet a couple of days ago uh, from, a, um, uh, from someone on, on Twitter saying that today, um, I'm sorry to say this, but today I gave my 40-year-old a Red Bull, an energy drink, because we don't have water in our house so I could just give him something to drink. And again, we keep talking about the massacres. We keep talking about the devastating news that we hear from doctors working in the hospitals and in the clinics in the Gaza Strip. Half of the hospitals in the Gaza Strip are already out of order. No fuel for the hospitals. Operating rooms are lacking all these resources and all the supplies. And just put into your thought the, the picture of someone getting operated upon without anesthesia. Imagine the amount of the pain that this person is going through, even after the pain that that person gone through, has gone through after being bombed in his or her home. Um, yeah, I mean, the scale of the human catastrophe, I mean, yeah, it's, it's impossible to even compute. That's what I feel like. Uh, you just can't take it in. It's too awful to contemplate. Um, but it's, these are crimes that will shame humanity forever, you know. Um, 
I mean, Ahmed's got to go, so I'm just going to ask um, the last question. I mean, we can stay maybe, for, but we'll, I'll just ask this question. And we'll see what happens afterwards. Um, so um, I've been talking to Ahmed over the last couple of weeks, and he always says to me, uh, the worst is yet to come. So I was just wanting to ask you all what, what you think is going to happen from here on in, and what is Israel's end game? What, 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 is the end, what do they envision the end of this, this genocide to be? Well, I think uh, Israel envisions uh, a master plan, a bigger plan, to finish off the Palestinian cons uh, once for, uh, and forever. They want to displace all the Palestinians from Gaza, kick them out. Once they're finished with Gaza, they will go to the West Bank. Uh, they want to also do the same with the West Bank. And once they're done with that, they will go for the Palestinians who live inside Israel. I think this is their plan. And they have made it very clear. Uh, they said it live on TV. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But now I think uh, it is not up to them. It's up to us, not only the Palestinians, but also every single person all around the world, because everyone will be complicit. Thank you. I believe every single person in this world will be complicit if they allow Israel to do their master plan now. Every one of us can do something. Not every one of us is helpless. Everyone can do something, especially people in the UK and especially people in the US. We have and do have a huge responsibility. We're not coming here to talk to you because you want, we, we want you to, be, to feel sorry for us. Of course not. This is the last thing in the world that we want. We want action, and we want action now. And there is a lot of things that you can do, every single one of you. Thank you. The least that you can do is to go to the protests. Every Saturday, there will be a protest. Hundreds of thousands, hundreds of, thousands of people go to the protest. If you are in London, if you are elsewhere, if you are in the US, and for people who are watching us online, you must go to the protests. You can write to your MPs. You can uh, join the BDS movement. It is right, it's about time that you join all these uh, advocacy groups and campaigns that ask for a sanction in Israel and bringing those people uh, to justice, these war criminals in Israel. It's up to every single one of, uh, of us. And it's up to every single one of you to stand up right now, once and forever. We will not allow the Israelis to do whatever they want to do with us. Now we are in the 27th century, and every one of you can do something. And you must do something. Because if you do not do something, then you are also complicit. Because silence is complicity. And if you are stay silent, then you are complicit against the Palestinian people. It is up to the British people to do something because it all started from London, from here. It all started from Balfour Declaration, giving us, giving the Israelis, the Zionist militias, our, our homeland. And for what? And ever since we have been struggling, 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 massacres and wars and destruction and siege and bombardment and military occupation and all of the suffering, it all started from this city, from this city. And this city and all of the UK has a responsibility right now to do something about it. And the American people, they also have a responsibility to do something about it because America is using the, the, the tax money they're taking from their people to give Israel weapons and money and support and all kinds of support. Le diplomatic support, military support, money and fund and everything they need. So it's up to the people of Britain and the UK, especially people of Britain and the UK, to do something about it. Because if not, we the Palestinian people, we will not forgive you. Thank you very much. Um, yes, Salim.
Um, actually, I was gonna. I'm, I meant to add a second question onto that, which is, uh, uh, what's Israel's grand plan? But also, what can we do? Because that's the question I get asked a lot. Um, so, if you can answer both those, that would be good. Well, I think um, I don't know what what Israel's plan is, uh, but I know for sure that what's happening now is an inflection point. Uh, things could, things will get much worse uh, before they get better. Um, but I think. We can no longer pretend uh, that this conflict is, is just, you know, a conflict that we have to, you know, like just manage what's happening right now. Um, I think it's, it's a wake-up call to everyone to think about this in the wider context of the oppression of Palestinians for the past hundred years. So maybe that's, maybe that's a silver lining I see um, out of all this misery. Um, so things will not go back to, uh, to before the 7th of October, I don't think so, for, for anyone. Um, things will be difficult for the Palestinians. The, when, when the Israelis are talking about uh, displacing Palestinians and pushing them out to Egypt, they're not just fantasizing about it. They, they do have a plan, and, and they do have a systematic plan. Uh, and if you see how, how the, the reason, the, the, for example, the, the reason they, 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 they're not allowing fuel uh, to go into Gaza uh, into the, to, to the, for the hospitals because they claim that the, the Hamas, Hamas might, be using, might, might end up using this, this fuel. I don't know for what, but yeah. Um, but when you think of like, why, why are you um, bombing the solar cells that are used by the hospitals, um, it's, 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 it's very explicit why they're doing this. They don't just they don't just want people to die. They want people to, to believe that there's no possibility for them to live in this land. Now, kind of you're not safe if you're if you're to the north of the Gaza Valley. And soon enough you will not be safe if you are in the Gaza Strip. And they will keep pushing people out and out and out. I was like, Yeah, you just just move a little bit further, you'll be you'll be safer. And um and again, back to the to the to the argument about why don't why doesn't this country take them? Why don't we distribute them? You know, across the globe because I think this would be ideal for 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 Israel is just to get I don't know um, five million Palestinians, just scatter them around the world, and then it would be very very difficult for them to reunite and kind of have a like a national movement again. Um, so this this argument is is part of their their plan. They're not they they are. Uh, they are thinking about it deliberately, and they are planning it very, very carefully. Uh, and I think on the 7th of October, they believe that they have um, everyone's support to execute this, this plan. It was the perfect opportunity for them. Um, I don't know how, how they feel about it right now, uh, mainly because of not the international, not the, not the official international support, but because of the... Of the, of the, of the with the support of the people around around the globe, uh, so hopefully they would realize that this is actually not going. To, they can't actually do do that. And um, and yeah, but but what they could do otherwise, that's it will be brutal. But but I, again, I think it's an affliction point in, in the way uh, we see the conflict and the way we see uh, the relationship uh, between the Palestinians and their occupier. Yes, uh, we are at uh, really, really challenging times, and I'm sure uh, we will cry a river after this is over or not, who knows. 
it's uh, it's very scary. It's frightening. Um, but um, yes, you can do it for the Palestinians because we won't forg forgive you. <laughs> we won't forgive the whole world. Already, um, we've we've had enough of uh, feeling abandoned and dehumanized. Uh, but do it for for your own selves, because if if the Baptist hospital in Gaza is made a legitimate target for bombing, if UNRWA schools, if bakeries are also uh, legitimate targets, then your bakeries might be next, your hospitals might be next, your schools might be next. It's, it's beyond comprehension um, what is happening in Gaza. We all are lost for words. But it is a genocide and we need to step up our reaction to save whoever we can save from this mad genocide that is targeting our people, leaving no one immune. In Gaza, it's happening at a more dense level, but it's happening in Jerusalem, in Jenin, in Nablus, in the Jordan Valley. The operation, the systematic dispossession of Palestinians is threatening all Palestinian communities everywhere. And we see settler thugs setting fires to our historical olive trees, to our homes, killing children going to school, worshippers in, in uh, Al-Aqsa. There's no place that, is, that remains holy. They stripped every place of its holiness, of its sanity. And we need to step up for this. Every one of us is an agent of change. We can do that in our family, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, write to your MP, and do whatever in your power to stop this. Because if this genocide goes unnoticed, there will be another victim coming. And Israel will not succeed in having a safe heaven that is dependent on the oppression of the Palestinians. We need to start thinking about collective liberation if we want to both live. Um, the, the first thing that comes to my mind uh, when we're talking about advocacy and we're talking about anything that we could do to support the Palestinians in, in, in the Gaza Strip or the Palestinians across the world at the moment is that, yes, I know that advocacy takes time. Yes, I know it's hard. Yes, I know that uh, sometimes you might feel like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I, I don't really have the capacity to do this anymore. But I know for a fact that uh, advocacy uh, shall always reach its, uh, its outcomes, uh, the things that we desire to have. 
And um, as a simple example, a very simple example in that is, is, uh, is something that we've done in, in the Gaza Strip uh, a couple of years ago, and actually during the May 2021 attacks on the Gaza, uh, attack on the Gaza Strip in, in, the whole, in the diabetes field is that we've, we've noticed that people with diabetes can't access primary healthcare clinics and they might be in need of emergency diabetes kits, as we call it and uh, maybe a better form of diabetes uh, services and supplies in, in, in the Gaza Strip. And uh, it, is, it is the first moment that I felt the warmth of the international diabetes community, and I say it this way because I know that we all now feel the warmth of the international pro-Palestinian community, the international community that cares for humanity. That warmth, that feeling that, oh, yes, we are united. Yes, we want to support each other. Yes, we want to help each other uh, because we are the ones whom are, like, in, 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 who, who are kind of understanding the dire need of those uh, in, in actual need of our support. And, and we succeeded as the international diabetes community to call for a meeting for international stakeholders to be able to provide those emergency kits for people with diabetes in, in the Gaza Strip and even change the whole um, um, healthcare system to add insulin analogs and those insulin are insulin pans. It's kind of an easier way to, to inject your insulin uh, to the essential drug list in, in, in Palestine. And we're slowly trying to improve the diabetes education in the Gaza Strip. And it all started with an idea. It all started with someone thinking that, yes, I can change the situation because I know that those people simply uh, have the right to live a better life, simply have the right to access a better healthcare service. And we all know that what we're going through is because of occupation. We are denied from our rights as human beings, our human rights of accessing healthcare because of occupation. That is why, why it's very important to, uh, to keep advocating, to keep talking, to, to, to be loud, and to use your voice for those who has no voice, for those who have been shut. And that is, again, why it's important to, to be united. And that's why it is a moral responsibility for all of us to use any way that would be um, helpful for those who, who, again, who can't use their voice, because that is a commitment that we all need to take uh, upon ourselves uh, as part of our moral responsibility uh, towards humanity, towards a better world for everyone uh, across it. I think uh, you got to go now, but uh, should, I wrap, uh, should I wrap up? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so, well, uh, that's a lot to take in, obviously. Um, I'll just finish by saying I echo what these guys are saying. We have a responsibility to the Palestinians, but also to humanity. This is a human crisis, um, unprecedented. Um, everyone's seen the images that are coming out that are going to be seared into our memory, but we can do something, and we have a huge amount of privilege here. We're in London here. The two most important places to be right now are London and Washington because they are the biggest backers of the uh, genocidal regime and this monstrous uh, uh, regime. Um, so we, and, and also, we have much more privilege than these guys. As we've been outlining, they go after Palestinians. Palestinians, like, like you said, Mohammed said, he, can't, he has less ability to speak here than he does in Gaza, even though we're told that Gaza is this nightmare for free speech, you know. So, we need to use that privilege and understand how privileged we are. Our actions have a, can have a big impact, and there's a lot of obstacles to speaking out for us as well, but they're small fry compared to what these guys put up with. You know, they're tiny. You'll get called anti-Semitic or you'll get called uh, hateful or all these things, but 
this is much much too important to uh to 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 to, to accept that and and uh i think if what i've been thinking recently is i always used to wonder what i would have done you know in the 1930s in 19 in nazi germany um would i've looked away would i've gone along with it this is the time where you know what you what you're doing now is what you would have done then this is on that level this is a they be the same level of dehumanization the same level of lack of respect for human life the same anti-humanism and we need to step up as shard said because this is this is something that i mean i've never seen it i think it's the worst thing i've seen in my life so um i want to leave it with that i'll just finish also with a shout out to the the organizers which is palestine deep dive which is a great organ and then finally um double down news which is a brilliant um uh, outlet which produces amazing videos which reach millions of people and they are what we need to support you know because as we've gone through it's the mainstream media that is complicit in this it's complicit in the dehumanization it's complicit in the fact that it doesn't do proper journalism the israeli propaganda goes straight from the israeli foreign ministry and the idf straight into the paper without any kind of critical journalism it's it's absurd but the way we need to combat that is alternative media and independent media that, 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 that does proper journalism and Double Down News is one of those. Um, so, so thanks to them for streaming it. And I'll just, I need to say this as well. Um, I've, I've, ne I've never been inspired by a group of people more than I've been tonight by you guys. So um, thank you. And also, th lastly, like the, the people that you're losing every day, I mean, it's a... It's un unconscionable. I can't think. I try to put myself in Ahmed's place sometimes, and I can't do it. I just can't do it. I don't know what it would be like. Can't imagine it. But um, so they'll never be replaced. But I think that it's clear that the world is on the side of Gaza, and also that you have all of us are your family as well. You know, and that is. I think everyone here will feel that. Um, everyone watching, and there's millions of people around the world like that. So you're not alone. This is a human. This is not just a Palestinian issue. This is a human issue. Um, so I'll end with that. Um, take action. Thank you.